Welcome to Fertility Fest 2018. I'm Natalie Silverman from the Fertility Podcast, and this session is called The Invisible Man. Now, it saw a screening of The Crossing, written and directed by Jack King, which is the fictional story of Terry, plagued by recurring nightmares as a result of the breakdown of his relationship due to his infertility. And you're going to hear a trailer from the film because it was 15 minutes short. doesn't really do it justice for you to just hear the audio for it. You'll also hear an excerpt from Tom Webb's new documentary film, The Easy Bit, which explores the real-life struggles of men trying to conceive. The expert panel consists of Dr. Wael Saab from CRGH and Dr. Cheryl Homer, Director of Andrology Solutions, and it's chaired by me. I keep having this dream. Cash, you listen. Mm. Yeah, babe, I'm listening. There's this little girl on this island. And she's all alone. It's not another song about it. what a baby or a feeling to the six pack. And the tide's coming in, I know. Get this feeling that she's in danger. Oh. Why won't you talk to me? And I'm desperately trying to tell her to keep away from the water. But Terry. I can't. All I can do is scream louder and louder until my head feels like it's going to explode, but it's, it's no use. I just can't reach her. Okay, well, before we obviously move into our panel discussion, Tom, do you want to tell us a bit about what we're going to see from, from your work? Yeah, um, so I'm making a documentary called The Easy Bit, which is about what it's like for men to go through fertility treatment. It's uh, six men talking to camera about their experiences, and uh, we've cut together a special little short reel to show you today. Um, the reel you're going to see is what it's like for men to go into what I refer to as the chamber of euphemism. It's basically what it's like for them to go and give their sperm sample on a collection day. So. <coughs> on a collection day, I'm going to do my part. And I don't remember if Davina was somewhere, I was somewhere, or like the where I went, but or how I got to where I was going. But I, I remember I opened open the door, there's a corridor, then there's a there's like a definite feel, uh, atmosphere change as you go from where all the women seem to be to this small pocket of the clinic that's the man's bit. The room that I was shown into to um, give my sample was a dimly lit room off a corridor with no windows, um, a wash basin, a hatch and a, and a sofa and not much else really. It was very clinical, it was, it was very like just do what you need to do and, and, and get over it. The room. Uh, can only be best described in my instance as a glorified toilet. Um, it is actually a toilet for patients, um, but it kind of there's a little section off the back, um, which is probably one of the most depressing things I've ever seen. It was a little bit like what I would expect a man cave to be, 
There was a television there on a TV unit and a DVD player. There was a black leather chair and a footstool. There was a basin. There was a toilet next to the toilet. There was a bidet. Possibly the most awful room in the world. It was a small room with a couple of chairs and actually we had a consultation process in the same room and to sign the consent form for the uh, egg collection earlier, which was bizarre. I open the door and I go inside and it's a really small room with a seat that has a plastic cover on it. You walk past the toilet to get to this section where there is a, a little chair and a, a chest of drawers with a radio on top. And the sole purpose of that radio is to try and, I suppose, one for me, drown out any noise that might distract me from what I'm doing. Um, and maybe some guys are noisier in others in doing what they're doing. So it's for, for patient and staff comfort. I, I don't know. I went over to the uh, TV unit, uh, opened up the, the, the cabinet doors on there and found a couple of DVDs. Um, one of them had a title something along the lines of The Revenge of the Busty Brunette. And then on the wall, there's like a newspaper rack. And in the newspaper rack, there's a selection of pornography. I remember there was some Gardner's World magazines. <laughs> it was really bizarre when you're thinking about what you were about to do. I didn't use any of their material that they had. <laughs> um, but I did have a look. <laughs> the pages were sticky. What always got me was... In fact, it was off the corridor, you keep hearing people walking past, and to know that behind the small hatch was a team of doctors, and when you'd done your sample, they would be there to whisk it away and do what they needed to do with it. I'm not going to bluff anyone or be naive enough to say I've never done it on my own before, that would be just stupid. Uh, but to, to have to do it in that setting, under pressure, um, with a time scale on the line, when you also know somebody else knows that you're doing it, um, <laughs> is, yeah, not something that you can ever get used to. I always remember the, the hatch where you put your specimen through, had a sign there saying, please make sure you're fully dressed before you put a sample through, which all I could think of was someone obviously has not been fully dressed. Or embryologist has seen an eyeful. So I remember, having a giggle, um, and then realising that the pop-up magazines were underneath the garden's work <laughs> in another box, which I only found afterwards. The amount of funding for research for female fertility is compared to male fertility is ridiculous. The difference is massive. So equally then, the preparation and information that women are given as opposed to men is completely different, which is, it, can, it just seems like it's really simple with men. So, whilst there was loads of explanation for Devine, like, this is going to happen, you're going to be here, and we're going to take you in, and you're okay, and do you want some tea, do you want some water? With, with men, it can feel like, right, here you go, go off and then, go off and, like, do your thing. It seemed fairly, fairly odd. Um, it was, a, I mean, a new experience, it was something totally different. I didn't, I didn't think I knew what to expect. Um, and it felt like everyone was just waiting for me to come back with a little pot and say, there you go, let's just continue. I wasn't given a huge amount of information. I have to, I mean, the things you have to do, so you have to fill out your information so that it, the right information goes with the right sample. 
um, pretty much the extent of the instructions were um, if you have any spillage, uh, make sure you calculate how much spillage there is. I mean, how you do that when it's, it doesn't go in the receptacle you're trying to get it in is, is beyond me. But that um, was one of the, the weird little things that um, I could never quite get my head around. But yeah, other than that, it, it was kind of like, well, you go into this room, you, you know what you're doing, just go and do it. I was prepared for performing the easy bit to be stressful, but on the day itself, when you're given very, very strict guidelines as to what you should do and what you shouldn't do, I did find that much, much harder to deal with because in essence, you have to masturbate into a pot and doing that is very, very difficult. And you're also told, do not touch the inside of the pot with anything. And you also have to capture as much of it, as much of it as you can. And what you mustn't do is not get the first lot uh, not in the pot. Um, and whatever you do, if you do make a mess, don't try and scoop it up. Um, so there's all sorts of, uh, all sorts of stress involved uh, after having been told this by a couple of nurses um, and everybody just waiting around the corner for you to do what you've got to do and then ask you if, um, if you tick all the boxes for, uh, for, for the process. So the whole thing was, was pretty stressful. Um, never had to do anything like that, even remotely, um, uh, previously to this. So um, then having to ring the bell to say, here you go, finished, uh, over to you. Even that itself was, um, was stressful. <laughs> Not easy at all. Um, I will be open and honest about this. I've not even, I don't think I've even spoke to, to Rachel about this, to be honest. Um, I thought I'd just be able to um, do it from the white bank, if you like. But it turns out that the, the pressure situation was too much. Um, and then, fortunately, there, there was decent Wi-Fi in the hospital. And I did have my phone on me, so I did have to resort to, uh, to using some sites. Um, but that was, I don't know, that... that that was certainly better than trying to peruse the, the sticky magazines that were in the drawer. Um, and as I said, at the end of the day, you, you've got one shot to, to do what you need to do. I'm not embarrassed about how, how we got to there. It doesn't bother me. So if I've got any advice to, to give anyone else, if you're going into that situation, um, try and put everything else out of your mind, obviously. Um, but <laughs> take whatever you need to take with you to, to do what you've got to do. Part of my thought process is don't mess this up. This has got to be really good. I think I was more nervous that it would, it would work and my side of what I could offer would be good. Um, the last thing I ever wanted was to see Sophie go through all that she did for, you know, my sample to not be good enough or you know, it not to be, you know, work in a certain way because of that. Because when it came down to it, what I was offering seemed so small in terms of you know, uh, the physical sort of toil, the, the emotional toil. It was just go in the room, do what you need to do and, 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 and go. It's a lot of pressure. Uh, you... You're building up, I suppose, this one moment. 
um, no pun intended. Um, you, I suppose as a man, your wife has been through so much, the hormones, the collection, and for you, this is the one bit that you can do. And you put a lot of pressure on yourself, um, which then makes it worse and harder. And it's just a really unnatural, sterile process. I wouldn't show anyone. Initially, it did take a bit of <coughs> accepting that we would need donor sperm. Um, it's not yeah, it's something we, we thought we could use, something that I had rather. So it was still sort of digesting the, the fact that there was nothing but myself that we could use. So um, initially, very, very sort of thought provoking and, and try and work out what way we go. But uh, within a few months, the, the acceptance that actually this is. A stranger helping us, a stranger giving us what we what we want, our dream. It it, it became accepted pretty quickly. Um, I, I do think of it as a as a sort of priceless gift from someone rather than the, the use of donor. It was tough because we thought we'd have more options uh, to go through. So I think we we both had these visions of being able to tailor someone that was a replica of myself. We wanted. In our heads to find someone that was my height, my hair colour, build, job, um, to, to be as similar in appearance as we could get. Um, the, the reality and uh, the clinic were pretty good from the start of telling us is that actually you, you may need to come back several months running to find a donor that is what you're after. There's just not the number of donors there um, to, to be able to be as picky as you would probably want to be to match your exact profile. At the time the support was offered, um, I probably like most men didn't want any help, didn't want it, couldn't accept any help. Um, the the counsellor at the clinic was was there at any time, and you could book a session. But I think the only thing that could be slightly different was it was couple sessions. I think maybe a bit of one to one time would have made things a bit easier for me. The whole process has changed me quite uh, quite dramatically. It's. It showed me I can be stronger than I thought I was. Um, it showed me it's actually okay to, to talk about things. Uh, it's very private before it. Um, so it's uh, it's such an invasive process that you you just have to accept things. So it's it's changed quite a lot of manners and what, what's important to you. You prioritise things completely different. So. Um, I, I can't think of one aspect of my life that's the same now as it was before the diagnosis. At some level it got me in touch with how absurd life and nature is. Nature and making life is. And here we are uh, with IVF. My part is overly fast. And Davina's part is so much more involved com like that involved committing things. She's, she gives of herself fully, women give of themselves fully, completely to this whole experience and sometimes it can feel physically that men, we're not as massively involved in the whole thing, even though emotionally we most definitely are. So this is Dr. Wal Saab, who's the fertility consultant and deputy clinical director at the Centre for Reproductive and Genetic Health.
and Cheryl Homer, who's the director of Anglology Solutions. You know our, our artists here. Um, what I think we really managed to capture was the emotion, and I really want us to talk a bit more about that. Um, I got to see the men's room that my husband had to do his sampling, um, and it was like quite a big walk from our clinic, and after I went back to him, we weren't together, I was doing uh, something at the clinic, and I was like, you never said, you had to kind of go through a door and have a pass to go through a door, and, and it was detached from the clinic, and he never spoke about that experience, he completely shut down, and I think it's amazing to hear the, 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 the men's feelings of doing their bit, the easy bit, which is so not easy. Um, I want to start with you guys about how you found the men to talk to you. Jack, first of all, because I know you did some research. Um, yeah. Was there reluctance? I imagine there was for yeah. the men to talk about what they were going through. To be honest, like a lot of the, the research, I kind of had to resort to using, uh, to sort of finding case studies and uh, sifting through um, really old HTML forums um, where people sort of speak in, like under pseudonyms and what have you, talking about the issues. Um, I think there was only two men actually got the opportunity to speak to directly about their experiences, but I think generally, yeah, the whole thing was sort of shrouded in, in there was a lot of uh, uh, secrecy around it, and like it was very difficult to get people to talk about it, I think, and I think the film actually was, was a response to that, uh, and it was, it, I realised that actually, because it just kind of got me thinking about uh, what that would feel like to to hold that in, do you know what I mean? That, for me, was almost like the biggest problem, I suppose, and the, big, the thing that was more tragic about it was not so much the, the fact that they weren't able to have kids at that moment in time, it was more about the fact that they couldn't communicate it, and it was those feelings of, like, self-blame and what have you, and, and all those things that, yeah, that struck me as, as most kind of, like, poignant. And, um, yeah. There was a lot of pride attached to, yeah. to this, and Tom, I know you yourself had a, a, a bumpy ride, mm. um, and the the work on the easy bit started whilst you were still on your journey. Is that right? Yeah. So uh, my wife and I wrote a blog called uh, Journey to the Far Side of the Womb, and we decided to write that whilst we were going through treatment. It took us a long time to meet the criteria to have treatment. So in total, we spent ten years trying to get a child, and I think 2015 was the year that we qualified for all of our treatments. We decided, rather than have to keep going over things for friends and family, we'd write a blog. And our friends and family pretty much ignored it and just kept bombarding us with questions. But other people started to, want to read it. And I think there was one particular post, which was the first time we did egg collection, and I had to go and give my sample. And we were both very honest about what it was like. And I was particularly honest about what it was like for me. And I think I got an overwhelming response from women saying, I had no idea that that's what it was like. I had no idea that's what my husband was presented with. I had no idea that's what he was going through. Um, I even had one woman message me and say that she'd read that and immediately gone and apologised to her husband because she felt she hadn't understood and it was from that, being being a filmmaker, that I started to think, I really want to make a documentary that this is this is where the things start to go. 
uh, although subsequently we, we have been successful, our, our fertility treatment was not successful and we went into a period of childlessness, which I have to say, Jack has captured astonishingly well. I, I, I related so much through that period. It, I mean, it, yeah, it really, really hit home, I think, for me. Um, and it was at that point, I, w- I was in that frame of mind of the main character in, in that film, and that's what gave me the drive to say, right, I've got to make this documentary. Because I, I, at that time, I needed something good to come out of what, what we'd been through. So that was what it was going to be, and you know, thankfully things changed for us, and, and, and we, we got exceptionally lucky. But uh, yeah, so that was kind of how it all, all started and came, came about. And those conversations, you know, the guys looking straight at you, telling you from their heart. I mean, were you quite surprised what you got? It, so when we shoot those interviews, uh, we have a small studio, which is half the size of this. There's a camera operator who is tucked very behind the camera and I sit at a 90 degree angle to the guys so I can't actually see their faces and I don't get to see what you see until I watch the footage back. Uh, and there's, there's two reasons why I do it. Firstly, not to distract them because as soon as, as, soon as someone's in your eye line, you, you start talking to them, you start making eye contact and I didn't want to have that. But also, if I could see their faces, I don't think I'd be able to ask half the questions that I had to ask, uh, particularly some of the tough ones. I, I don't think I would have just felt too guilty about having to ask it at that time. But, it, and, it, and I also think that these guys are sitting effectively talking to an inanimate object. They're talking to this little black lens, little hole in front of them. And I would sometimes ask the question, and they would just, it would just pour out. And, and sometimes I'd, I would sit there and listen and I'd think, well, I got what I needed out of this like three minutes ago, but I'm not going to stop them talking because they obviously need to say this. So it was, it, was a, it was a fascinating process. And I have to say, I think this, all of their stories are different and I tried to make a nice cross-section of stories and they're all different to me, but there was, there was a moment in every interview where I related 100% and there was a moment in every interview where I was just gobsmacked by something that I wasn't exposed and expecting. I just wanted to mention Gareth, who's one at the end, who talked about his ability to now talk more about it, actually has set up a male-only Facebook group, which we can share details if anybody's interested in, in that. It's, a, it's what it is. No women are allowed to make and can have discussions in a, in, a, in a place where they're happy to maybe say things that they wouldn't say in front of their, their, their other halves. Um, I want to talk about the, the clinic aspects. Um, Cheryl, you have a clinic that specialises in male fertility issues and the andrology side of things is something that I think needs so much more kind of a, of a spotlight on it. We've, we've spoken about it. Tell me a bit about the kind of men that you see and the, the approach that you have because am I right in saying that men are likely to come to you having been told that they've got, uh, they've got a problem, the problem's with them, as, as my husband was so beautifully told. Mm-hmm. I think um, I'm very fortunate because I'm in a situation where I see men on their own. I don't think there are any other situations in an IVF clinic where men are seen on their own rather than when mm-hmm. they have to produce a sample. So because of that, I, I see the men from a very different point of view. 
men come to see me for all sorts of reasons. They might be just starting out with their partner to try and conceive, and they just want to check that everything's okay. Um, I have men come to see me who've uh, been trying for, for many years with their partners and things are not happening. Um, I see men who come to see me after multiple cycles of IVF. It hasn't worked. They then come back and see me um, when they know that there is a problem and they want to find out why, what's actually causing this. Is there any way that they can, they can make things better? Um, and I also see men coming where, where they have been successful in conceiving, but there's been multiple miscarriages, because, of course, miscarriage connects may just do a few genetic tests and for the men, and that is it. End of story. They are completely sidelined. So I feel very privileged, um, and I think you know some, some of the things that, that the men explain to me would be things that they would never dream of saying in front of their partners. Um, and the, the other thing that's very interesting is that I don't encourage the men to come along with their partners. If they do want to bring their partners, of course, their partners are welcome. But I would say that in the majority of the cases in those situations, um, the women automatically take charge and the men become a little voice, an invisible voice. So I like the title of this, The Invisible Man, because it very much is that. So we give the men the opportunity to, to talk about their feelings and about their fertility, and we can focus solely on them. Why is that? I mean, well, we, we talked about it, we heard it discussed that, that guys and Tom, from your experience, feel that their part is so small, even though it's so vital at a certain stage of the, the, the IVF process, and when they've seen their partner going through, you know, the hormones, and, and it, it, I'm not assuming anything, but it's probably more likely that it's the, 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 the woman who's kind of gone, and we're going to eat this, and we're going to try this, and I've read this, and why would you say that the men that you're speaking to are retracting so much? Basically, I like in getting involved in all of these conferences because it's really an eye-opener for us as clinicians, yeah. I have to say. Uh, because although we anticipate that men will feel like that, but they will rarely verbalize that in a clinical setting to a clinician, I have to say. Um, why? For two reasons. If you want to simplify matter, like 50% of fertility is related to a male factor and 50% to a female factor, so if we are dealing with a couple who have a female factor in fertility, then the gentleman sitting there will have this feeling of guilt that, uh, you know, my wife is going through all of these hormonal treatment and my bit is only going to be produced the sample in a matter of 10, 15 minutes, so I don't have the right to complain or even question what I'm going to do. And if we go the other way around, so if we are dealing with a couple who have a male factor in fertility, Again, unfortunately, men will have a lot of feeling of guilt because they feel that all what my partner is going through is because of me. I don't want to bore you, but I did a very quick, uh, uh, because I'm highly interested in the, psych uh, the psychological aspect of men rather than you know, the medical and so on. I'm not going to bore you, I'm not going to read lots of stuff, but I couldn't memorize lots of no, the information yeah. written there. So um, I found in the Journal of Reproductive and uh, Infant Psychology, a lady called Samira Malik from the Institute of Work and Health and organization at the University of Nottingham. She mentioned that men are in fact equally affected by the unfulfilled desire for a child, but they are less open about their feelings, which is 100% true. 
uh, I can easily tell you as a man, and when you are seeing a male factor, uh, a, a gentleman in a fertility context, remember it's a mixture of lots of emotions. At the end of the day, there's this feeling of depression, anxiety, low self-esteem, the mixture between masculinity and being a male and being able to perform and sexual dysfunction, they are all interlinked. And without any doubt, we always have this stigma that male factor infertility is, is directly related to sexual dysfunction. And this is in our subconscious mind. It might be related to evolution, could be. Irrespective of how civilized we are, we have still have this stigma in our subconscious mind. Uh, just, I'm not going to, to be for long, but I tried to find, and this issue that attention to male factor infertility is deficient is not a product of 2017 or 2016. This has been for several years, to an extent that if you go and look into the archives, into the psychoanalysis electronic publishing archives about the psychology and male infertility, you will find no published articles between 1927 to the year of 2000. And all of the articles that are published are after the year of 2000. Uh, just another few things that I just want to, uh, to mention because I'm highly interested in the psychoanalysis, which is uh, uh, clearly uh, uh, shows in the first movie, which is The Crossing, because I'm a strong believer that anything that happens to you comes back in your dreams, comes back from your subconscious mind. And those nightmares definitely mean something. So from the, uh, 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 from the University of Ma from Massachusetts Institutes of Psychoanalysis, uh, one of the doctors there, Dr. Kyler, has mentioned that the assault, and this is the, psycho, uh, the psychoanalytic interpretation of how men feel when it comes to fertility and their fertility. They mentioned that it fe they feel that it's an assault to the man's sense of self, revives a feeling of competition, of castration, which is a typical Freudian term, and experiences of developmental trauma. Uh, going, uh, going, uh, take things further, because you just mentioned uh, regarding your husband that it was his problem. I don't believe media, with all my respect, in some of its, uh, not all, we shouldn't be generalizing, is helping that as well. I read a very off-putting title in The Telegraph in March 2018, and that title said, IVF to fix male infertility infringes human rights for women, argue scientists. If you read the article, I know what they are trying to say. They are trying to say, put more effort in male infertility. But to mention in that article that women have to, to bear the burden of male subfertility, I think is so off-putting for men. With all my respect to the person who wrote that article, but it's so offensive against men. So um, that's what I have to Thank say. Thank you. Really interesting. And you raised a, a few points that I wanted to just just kind of capture um, about the emotional toll, which we've we've talked about, and, and it's a theme that will come up all through the weekends because the mental health implications of of being on a fertility journey are so significant to, to men and women and what you showed with Terry's <clears throat> suffering and his struggle and you know seeing in the pub and getting a bit leery the kind of stereotypical yeah. kind of response and and Tommy you said that you know you could relate with that 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 phase I mean the, the, the whole childless aspect which of course will be discussed over this weekend I don't know if we think about the toll that it has on on men enough um, what kind of response did you have from, from people having seen Terry and what happened and what he went through? 
Um, you, the response from just what the general... people watching. I mean, were people saying that they really thought that a guy would feel like that? Um, God, I've not really spoken to that many people. Oh, I've been okay. aware, so it's just been okay. doing sort of thing. But um, I think generally, like, uh, what really mattered to me actually was the response of because um, there was there's the, uh, within the sort of affiliate community and what have you, we've had quite some some positive feedback and stuff. And that's and that was the stuff when making the film that really mattered to me in terms of in terms of uh, what, how somebody might interpret it, whether or not it was sort of like um, accurate or fair in, in its um, representation, because um, I was really worried about, uh, I don't know, sort of like um, it being too, uh, it, so I, I don't know, it, it not really getting to the prop, to the um, to the issue, like it just sort of um, patron, being patronising or condescending in some way, like simplifying it. But actually, some of the responses that we've had from people within that community have been really positive, and obviously, this you know being invited here today has been really good, and that sort of makes me that that yeah that makes me happy in the sense of like I feel like that you know that's what I set out to achieve, I suppose. Um, uh, but yeah, with regards to I, I'm not too sure. I like to okay. I like to just I just send it out and then it's it's done. Yeah. So <laughs> I don't I don't generally want to know. Tom, the emotions that we heard from the guys talking about, you know, the, 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 the worst thing they've ever done. I mean, that pressure, and I know, uh, 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 depending on what kind of stages you're at, forgive me if you're just starting or you're already having treatment, but um, there, there can be kind of a frozen sample taken, can't there, for, for men if there is that concern on, on the day. So um, there is a kind, kind of um, backup so to speak, but still, it doesn't take away from that, that performance that, aspect, does it? In my case, that wasn't mentioned, wasn't offered. Okay, okay. Like, you know, and it, and it didn't even occur to me till the day that I had to do it, that it was like, oh, I wonder if they've, like, have they got a back? Like, you know, did they keep one of the previous ones that I did for tests? Or, and so it'd be really, you, you literally walk in that room and it's like, everything comes down to this. Because if I don't get this right, all of those drugs... All of the like, all of the NHS hoops we've just jumped through. All of that be for nothing. So it, it hits you so hard when you kind of get into that room that the weight of what you have to try and do. Mm. That uh, yeah, I think that there's there's a few things that I think a lot of clients should just do as a matter of course for for that for that for that side of it. Can we talk about the rooms, the gentlemen's rooms? <laughs> Do you want to describe the room in your clinic? We tried to change the names. They used to be, we tried to make it a little bit more pop. They used to be called production room. Right now we call them booth. It's a booth? Look at that. Yeah. But, but they still don't look very appealing. I can't agree more with the man who described those rooms. I think last year, also in the fertility test, there was a gentleman who was taking pictures of those booths. He's here every Yeah. So, uh, yeah, definitely, I have to say, unfortunately, it has to be more or less a medicated way Why? to produce a sperm sample. I know I get medicated to a point, but, but visually, it doesn't have to be kind of so sparse and neutral. I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, remember that we try to keep things as much medicated as possible without going a little bit sleazy or cheesy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. 
it is, it is a very difficult question, yeah. I have to say. Specifically because I was involved during the move, because our clinic used to be in one place and we moved to a different place. And at one point in time, they were just showing me a catalogue of different chairs and sofas to see which is the best one. Not really, no, I picked the red one. I don't know why. Yeah, I don't know, it might be in the psychology. <laughs> so yeah, I have to say that I'm not, we changed, so we stopped having the sticky magazines, right now we have the DVD, so we are getting a little bit more advanced. But at the end of the day, I have to say, it's not, I think the best way, if we reach a specific stage, where men can produce at the comfort of their own home, because irrespective of how great is a clinical setting, at the end of the day, it's a clinic. So there will be people moving around, there will be phone call, phones ringing, there will be just people saying, oh, what, what time are you going to ICSI? So these are things that are going to happen. So if we find a specific way where men are going to produce at the comfort of their own homes and the sample transfer to the clinic in a specific period of time, or I don't know what, just in the future, just freeze it at home in a specific way and bring it to the clinic, I think that would be the best way where really men will feel comfortable. Apart from that, irrespective of how great is the room, I don't know whether you agree with me, guys. I don't think, at the end of the day, it will be a room <laughs> or, yeah. or a booth. Yeah, it's one of those things that you, you kind of... You understand why it has to be the way that it is. And it is one of the other things I mentioned in the session that I the other day was the fact that the pot I was given had my wife's name on. Mm. <laughs> and it's like, I know why. I, I understand 100% why. But it's kind of like even that's not mine, not, yeah. and it, and I think you just kind of feel like it definitely feels like talking to the guys. It just seems to be like, oh, that that one will do. We'll stick a sofa there, and then that's it. It's done, and mm. and you kind of want a bit more thought behind it, a bit more effort behind it, and you know you go to these clinics, and there's some lovely areas and beautiful places to relax and all that kind of stuff, and then there's just like this little dingy room that you kind of like. The one I went to was above the stables of this old country house. So, you know, it's kind of, you just get shoved wherever there's space, in a way. And like the guys are saying, it's either a toilet or you know, that kind of stuff. So I, th I think there's, I can't answer what it should be, but I think, you know, there needs to be like something that, some thought behind it as to what it, what it could be. Cheryl, your rooms. Yes. You say you have red chairs as well. We have red leather chairs. They're very ultra modern. Okay. So there's no, there's no arms. They're just sort of red leather, mock leather sort of bucket chairs with steel bases. Um, my oh, sister's like an artist, so we've got <laughs> artistic paintings okay. in the place. We've hung paintings and we've gone out. We went to um, a furniture shop and we've got some nice tables where we put the silk flowers and vases and things and try to make it as homely as possible. Yeah. Because I'm still having the sort of um, the linoleum flooring, you know, that goes up the side, well, clinical, yeah, you know, yeah. sort of CQC, and, you know, regulated. Because I visited yeah. clinics and asked that question, and sometimes I've had the response that they don't want the guys to get too comfortable in there. Oh, we want them to be very comfortable. We want them to be as comfortable as possible. And also, you've got to appeal, so to speak, to gay and straight men. Yes. So imagery on the wall has to be considered, doesn't it? Well, it's sort of I want to just talk a little bit about how men are dealt with in consultations with, with both of you because 
I've spoken to uh, a number of men for my podcast, and I always try to kind of gauge from them how they feel. And, and more often than not, men feel overlooked. They feel they're not looked at or spoken to. And Tom just described the pot not even having his name on. My other half, I know, felt like this. Um, and I know clinics are uh, constantly talking about offering bespoke care and wanting to, to make sure the couple are treated as a couple, but it doesn't seem to be happening. That's true. I have to admit we might be part of the problem and uh, that's why we need, you know, always, we always have feedback from such movies, from such conferences, uh, from such meetings, I mean. Uh, it all starts even by calling the patient from the waiting room. I have noticed that most of us will call by the lady's name. So we call the lady's name. Uh, it's part of the medical history. We have to admit that the vast majority of the medical history is from the woman, which is fine. We can't change that. But I. But what's more annoying is that even treatment mainly involves women. So I have recognized, even when I try to reflect on my behavior, is that my eye contact is 90% of the consultation with the lady, and I only acknowledge men for a short period of time. So I started reflecting on that, and I changed my practice in how to lead the consultation. So every few minutes, I just try to just ask a question, or sometimes I entertain the question, some questions for men in between. Yeah. Because it's quite annoying, because he's a gentleman sitting in the corner while I'm looking at the lady and discussing the risks, the complications, and everything. And at the end of the consultation, we used to say, okay, just antioxidants, good lifestyle, and that's it. So again, again, we have to start involving men more and more. And as I say, we learn this. Learning is not something bad. We learn, and it's a good eye-opener every time we hear such experiences from men. Okay. And Cheryl, we've spoken about oxidative stress and the impact that that has on sperm. And it's something that I want to just talk a little bit about with you. We're talking about lifestyle and things that affect male fertility issues because as we've said it's 50% 50-50 male-female factor when we're talking about fertility issues and um, some of the conversations that you're having with the men that you're speaking to from the kind of early stages that kind of um, the the changes that you can suggest the things to think about just talk a little bit about that for people who, who maybe, if you're here with unexplained intercellular diagnosis, or maybe is male factors that I don't know always get spoken about enough. Yes, I mean, obviously, lifestyle is a contributing factor, but unless you're an alcoholic and you smoke 50 cigarettes a day, it's not going to be the major cause of your infertility. So, lifestyle is a very secondary thing mm. for us in our clinic. You know, we're not an IVF clinic. Mm. We're dealing with infertility. And infertility doesn't always mean IVF. And I think that's a, that's a real problem for, for the, the media in general and everyone in general is that whenever the discussion is about fertility, it's always about IVF. Mm. But IVF should be the last resort. And IVF shouldn't be the focus. The focus should be in investigating infertility and managing the infertility. IVF doesn't manage infertility. You're still infertile at the end of the day, irrespective of whether it's successful for you. It doesn't treat your infertility. So if you are a woman, you need to see a gynecologist, and women are fortunate because the majority of IVF units are run by gynecologists. There is not a single IVF unit that is run by a male fertility specialist. Not one. So the men have a hard time. You know, fertility units are not for men. Mm. Um, and, and men need to actually be seen by a consultant urologist that specialises 
in infertility. I do my bit. I'm a scientist and I work very closely with these consultants. And I'm not knocking IVF. I've had IVF myself and I've suffered a lot. It wasn't my husband, it was me. <laughs> Left it too late. Um, my career was so important. Don't do that, women. You need to get on it. Um, but, um, you know, it, it's, it's so important that we investigate fertility and that we use IVF as the last resort when it's really, really required. And, and then we've got brilliant people like YR who, who can come in and, and, and really help. But again, if you're going with, with um, fertility issues, um, IVF is not going to, to solve all of those fertility issues. If you have sperm that are damaged inside, if you have sperm that are damaged genetically or they are damaged in terms of their functionality, in terms of being able to produce a normal, healthy embryo, IVF is not going to solve that problem for you. You know, it, it's true that there are studies that show that ICSI treatment might be able to improve your chances if you have damaged DNA. But ultimately, we want to find out what, what is causing that damaged DNA. Why would you want to throw £10,000 at treatment with damaged gametes, with damaged eggs and sperm? You know, this is, this is the thing that, that I feel... I'm talking fight club here, aren't I really? That's <laughs> okay, the fight club. But for me, this is, this is something that we really need to go back to the beginning. You know, I see so many couples that have multiple failed attempts at IVF, multiple miscarriage after years and years, and, and then they come back and see me. They should see me to begin with. Mm. Um, and, and this is what's so important. I mean, looking after your health, other things, for example, people... People go and take antioxidants. Does anyone here know what, what, what these supplements are, how they work? Why, why is it? Does anyone know how they work? Put up your hands if you have any idea. I know you guys do over there. That's my thing. <laughs> okay, anyone else? You know, uh, supplements that you take, fertility supplements, are antioxidants. They mop up Oxidants. Oxidants are now known to be the leading underlying cause of male infertility. And oxidants are produced by all sorts of conditions that men have. Does anyone know what the leading known cause of male infertility is? No? No. <laughs> so we know that varicocele, 40% of men have varicoceles if they are infertile. 15% of fertile men have varicoceles. It's a clump of varicose veins in the testes, basically. And the way in which we think that varicocele works is that it causes oxidative stress. It heats up the testes, it causes oxidative stress. Now, if you take supplements, antioxidants, to mop that up, you're going to have a hell of a time trying to to mop up a puddle when you've actually got a tsunami coming. What you need to do is treat the barricasium. Okay, so these are the sorts of things that we do in our clinic. We try to ask the questions, what is causing the problem? Not try and manage something when we, haven't, when we have no idea what the cause is. Another leading cause of, of oxidants is infection, inflammation. There's no point in taking lots of antioxidants if you've got an underlying infection, and many of these are silent. 
There's and not a huge amount of evidence out there that it affects fertility because the studies haven't been done. And in the studies that have been done, there is more evidence accumulating now that underlying infections might be contributing to miscarriages and recurrent failure of IVF and failure to conceive. So we need to try and ask those questions, not just say, well, semen analysis looks like, ooh, there's antibodies, maybe there's infection. We'll just give you antibiotics. You need to determine what, what is causing that infection to prescribe the right course of antibiotics, because you could be killing out good bacteria, and bad ones are going to get even worse. So that's, that's really where. So in an ideal scenario, when a couple are going to their GP, They've been trying for a year and a bit, and is that where you want to see these kind of conversations? GP says, okay, mm-hmm. we need to do this for you, mm-hmm. Mrs. Such and Such, or Lady Such and Such, not that you're related, but to the, to the woman, and to the guy, we're going to do XYZ, not just a semen mm-hmm. analysis. You want to see more early stage investigation? Yes, I think, you know, poor GPs, they're, they're, they're meant to be the master of everything. You know, it's a huge ask for the GPs. But I think the triaging here is wrong. Okay, when a GP sees a problem with a woman, he sends her to a gynecologist. If he sees a problem with a man, he sends him to an IVF unit. And first of all, that's a huge ask on the NHS to send patients for IVF treatment because it's hugely costly. If they were triaged properly and sent to a consultant urologist, that specialises in male fertility, they might be able to encourage and help them to achieve a pregnancy naturally. Mm-hmm. I do think that there are plenty of people that are going for IVF and it may not always be necessary, and it's a huge ask on the, on the NHS. More money needs to be put into investigations and management at the level before IVF, so that IVF is only a, a last resort and money can be channeled appropriately in the NHS, so there'll be more money mm. to fund people who really need it. I want to just open up to questions, because there's lots of stuff that we can carry on discussing here. Um, I think it's such a kind of important thing that we get as much awareness and empowerment out there for you to be able to go and ask these questions. Yes? Yeah, well, just picking up on that last point, um, and what is the main reason why the NHS wouldn't be... Um, or, yeah, what, what, why is there not current funding trying to support that early investigation first, the type of investigation that you run at your clinic. You know what, I really wish I knew the answer to that. Mm. Uh, Do you mind, I don't know whether you agree with me or not, partly, which I strongly agree, we need to do by far more investigations for the men's side, but so far, everything that is guided, what tests are done by the GP and what is funded is what is evidence-based and what is in the NICE guidelines. That doesn't mean that doing these specific tests for men, they are of no value. On the contrary, time is showing us day after day that they are quite important and pivotal in the treatment. But right now, if you go to the GP and ask a GP, I need a sperm DNA fragmentation test, or I need, I don't know, an aneuploidy test, or uh, oxygen uh, species, reactive oxygen species, they will tell you these are not evidence-based. While the NICE guidelines say if you have a low sperm count, Repeat it, and if it's if it's still very low, go for IVF or ICSI treatment, and that's most of probably. So we go back. So we need more research. We need stronger data to support all of these practices. 
I um, I'm not talking about those kinds of tests. Mm, yeah. I'm talking about being fully investigated, for example, ultrasound. ultrasound yeah, yeah, physical yeah. examination. Because it's not just varicocele, there could be a number of hydrocele, uh, epididymal cysts, all sorts of issues there could be um, that, that need to be investigated, underlying systemic illness. There's, there's a whole variety of things. Um, I'm not talking about you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. things. Um, men need to be properly investigated, just like women. Mm. They, you know, if they have a low sperm count, is there a hormone imbalance? Mm. Men are not routinely given hormone tests, for example, like women. Um, men are not given ultrasound scans, like women. Men don't have physical exams. The WHO um, are now coming out with new criteria for investigation of men. Um, this was actually published last summer, the draft guidelines, and um, it is absolutely essential that men have uh, a full medical history taken. Men aren't given a full medical history, as far as I know, um, certainly not in IVF units, um, having been there myself. Not, not all of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, full medical history, they need to have a proper physical exam, they need to have an ultrasound scan, and they need to have a hormone profile as well as semen analysis. And these are just not done. You know, men have semen analysis, that's it, which is a very, very poor indicator of fertility. And in actual fact, some of the tests that you're talking about, there's, there's a considerably more evidence out there that shows that those parameters um, in a semen analysis are less correlated with fertility than something like DNA fragmentation or oxidative stress measurement, for example, much more highly correlated with fertility. And yet we accept, doctors are happy to accept a semen analysis where there's very little evidence that it's associated with, with fertility directly, um, but they aren't happy to accept other tests where there is more, more correlation. So it's, a, it's very ambiguous, and, and it's, I, it's a question of what's classically been accepted yeah. for decades as opposed to current uh, evidence that is coming out, it seems like we require, we're much more stringent about requirements for um, value of, of, of the test compared to accepting tr traditional tests that may actually have limited value. Yes? Do you mind me asking one? And I'm a director. It's your event. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> Those films are brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And again, it, this festival reminds me that, like, you're ju you just watching your film. I was exactly that. Like, my husband went through this, and I, I didn't know all of that stuff. Things like the pot, of course, the pot. You're having to aim into a pot at this like crucial moment. Surely, guys, there is a better version of a pot that can help guys I was chatting to Gareth last night with my husband and he's doing a session called You, Me and the Porn Star, um, which is on Sunday. And he was saying, God, I hate that title, Gabby. I hate it. And I was like, I know you do. That's sort of the point. Because he's like, I don't want to be reminded that my children have been born because I wanked off to a porn film. I hate that about that fact. I hate that I'm going to be reminded on Sunday that that is how we made my children, our, our children. Is there a way of making this process 
closer to what you do, what those other people, amazing people do, where they have sex and they have a baby, which still seems to me like it, that's a fucking miracle. Um, <laughs> is there not a way that, that we can go into that room together? And, and it, you know, you're not having to wank off to a porn mag, you're there with your... Uh, your Sometimes you still love. Yeah, yeah, basically, just regarding that, Gabby, uh, uh, there are some patients for religious reservations, they cannot basically produce sperm via masturbation. And there are specific condoms that are, don't have any spermicide. So they can have intercourse with their partners, then try the condom, put it in the pot, and bring the pot to the clinic. Uh, definitely, there's re uh, you have to always think about, you know, most of the time it might not be as easy in the sense that ladies are most of the time in pain, in discomfort, mm -hmm. the ovaries are stimulated, but that's the closest it can be get to what is known as normal or normality. The other way is just to produce at home, which is, I think... The problem is, is to, the, the, dare I say, the technical aspect, because sperm produced in a pot is a very unnatural situation. You know, normally sperm don't stay in the semen. Once they get into the female reproductive tract, they're swimming and they're off. They're out of the mm -hmm. semen within a matter of minutes. They're through the, the into the, the through the cervix and they're into the womb and swimming off. So they don't stay in the seminal fluid for very long. Seminal fluid, although it's relatively nutritious, it also contains factors that can um, be quite unfavourable to sperm, and they start to die. So what we want to do is capture them as soon as possible and get them out of the fluid and, and put them into a fluid that sort of mimics the female tract because they love that. They love the female tract. They don't like being in fluid. So you've got that sort of technical difficulty. The longer they're out, the, you know, the, the more chance that they, they might be ex exposed to an environment they don't like. So that's why you've got to balance the... What we're trying to do is the best for everybody by, by having it so close to the lab and then you can immediately get them out and get them going to, you know, do, having a sample produced at home to bring it into the lab. So it's, it's, it's difficult, it's very difficult. It follows on from that really. Um, it does seem to me that there might be some other options as well. <laughs> um, certainly I, I went through a, a whole raft of tests around my fertility and um, at the time we were trying to conceive, it was pretty much, I was pretty much certainly azospermic, but let her try. So my wife wasn't being prepped, so she was available. And she came into this lovely room with me. Um, and, you know, I won't draw your pictures, but <laughs> <laughs> a nice time. And, um, <laughs> I think that there were options um, that might be available. And I know, you know, she's got to be in the gown and, you know, swabbed up and ready to go for it when you're having an egg collection day and all that, but maybe there are some where you can actually see each other. <laughs> Maybe the room could be next door. Um, there's yeah. a cubby hole or something. <laughs> <laughs> <Not bands. laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, I mean, we, if the women want to come in, we have the women in as well if they want to. But uh, quite often, they just want to get it over with. Yeah, exactly. That wasn't we weren't allowed. Yeah. We were told Contamination. Um, oh, we were told other things we weren't allowed to do. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, yeah. We were just told not to touch that part with that part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, I think what those films, and thank you for those films, I think what they showed so, especially Jack, your film of, of the trauma associated with going through that fertility journey or treatment and um, or being infertile and having to cope with that and how that had, you know, Terry had a trauma reaction yeah. and all the things that then eventuated from that in terms of, of drinking and alcohol abuse and depression, anxiety and, and post-traumatic stress. Yeah. And I think that highlighted so beautifully and what your film showed, I think, Tom, so well was that, you know, that every person said they did, I wasn't prepared for what to expect. But that, you know, in terms of protecting people from that trauma reaction, just that, in terms of providing information, mm -hmm. that this is what will happen and that how protective that can be for people's long-term mental health. And I think that that's such a simple thing, um, you know, to provide with people in depth this is what will happen and how you do that and how you do that in a way that really connects with people um, could be have such a, a really simple but powerful impact on people's long-term mental health. I think that duty of care is, mm -hmm. is so vital in the discussions that we're having over the weekends and it's something that those of us who've been through treatment or started to go through treatment, it's so important to have it on your radar that you can ask these questions, what's going to happen, what, what do you mean I've got to go into a room and do a pop, uh, you know, and, and give a sample because... Did, did you ask any questions or were you just kind of okay yeah I mean because on the face of it, it that's, a, that's a simple thing to do you just kind of go oh okay yeah, yeah. alright I've got to go do that that's fine but I don't think like I, like I said before I think the first time I did it I didn't I didn't know that I was going to have all of those all of that pressure was going to hit me yeah, you've got no reference. Cause, because you've got I had no reference. point of reference to, to, to that specific situation yeah. and I think that um, I think that as a matter of course one of the things that I've always found I always found very difficult was they say you're not allowed to you when you produce your sample on egg collection date it needs to be between two and five days since you, know. since you last ejaculated but you don't know an egg collection date so you so you like in the run up to that week you're already stressed out because you're thinking, well, I've got to do this at some point. Do do if I do it today, is that too soon or too late? Yeah, it's meant to be fast and then enough I think, to be Yeah, good. if I do it today, but I don't do it tomorrow, and then I don't do it after that, and then is that too late? And, and So that just gets thoroughly confused. You're already stressed out about that. Then you turn up, and you've got to do it on the day. That's your literally your one shot at it. And I, th I think it's a matter of course you should when either when the women go in for their first ovary scan the men should go along and provide a sample then so that you you've got something and then you know ideally if the clinics can advise you more on when they think a collection day is going to be i know it's a very difficult thing to do and they have to have to you know i went to all of our ovary scans i knew i knew the, the millimeters of all the follicles and i knew everything but I still couldn't calculate. Is it going to be the next time we go, or, or when? So I think things like advice like that would be really, really helpful. And then when you go on the day, kind of when you get taken to that room, you, you, you're a bit more prepared. Seeing the room beforehand, maybe like, again, like on the day, you have to do your safety shot, if you like. Um, you know. Just kind of knowing the environment, knowing what's there, knowing, you know, do I have anything that I need to take with me? You know, so, so we, were, we were talking about in, in, in the green room, I remember when I went in, one of the 
their pornographic DVDs was like this really extreme bondage. And, 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 and I just looked at it and I thought, oh, oh what, if you, what if you cannot do this unaided by something that is a fetish, that is like not the norm? Yeah. And, I, and I was like, imagine being the guy that has to go, actually, I need to... I need, to like, I need to dre- oh, I need to do this or I need to do that. I had, do you address that with the clinic? Do you, I just, it was all of that stuff. I was standing there for a few minutes just like, wow, I wonder what it's like if you do that. And then I realised, I was like, oh, I've been here for like five years. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm not even you know, got started. And it, so, it, like, I think, you know, if, if you go in and see all of that stuff beforehand, you'd kind of know, okay, well, I'm, I know that I need to bring X material or I might ask, can my partner come in with me? You know, you, you kind of get a feel as for what would work for you because the trouble with you making these rooms is that everyone's different. Everyone's not going to like the same environment. You know, and like you say, it's got to be clinical, it's got to be clean, but it's also got to feel comfortable and welcoming. It's, it's an incredibly difficult environment to create. And I, and I personally think that having a partner there would be the, the most useful thing because it, it gives you a sense of something that's slightly more normal and a bit more comfort. Yeah. I think that, that like, I don't mean comfort in the types of chairs and stuff, but I mean like, you know, emotional comfort is what you need in that moment. Because like, like Gabby's husband, you want that's the moment you could be creating yeah. life of your child. You want it to be special in some way. Yeah, can I, sorry, I just I want to say on that um, I think you say, you, I was really struck with what you said, Cheryl, about um, that if they, if they want to be together, they can be. And I think that is true of clinics, but I think it's changing the mindset, which is because for years they have been separated. And, uh, and I think it's about sort of coming to it from a place which is they will want to be together and they don't, and they, and they don't have to be if they don't want to. Mm-hmm. And sort of because we we had to ask, and then it's like, okay, we'll make that work. But it isn't a proactive thing, and I think, and I, I really don't believe that. So it's yes, we'll do it if you ask, but we've got to make it more like, of course, you will want to be together at this point. We asked and worked out. So and you asked and you might have. Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask? Well, I think I I think I take that on board because you're right. We don't sort of. Um, it's sort of, well, you know, if, if you want to, by all means, it's not sort of, I think it's sort of generally accepted, I don't know why or how, that, that men would go into the room on their own. Yeah. But I think what you're perhaps suggesting is that we need to be a bit more proactive yeah, about saying, it and, and say, not making you know, one you're coming, the other. Yeah. Yeah. which would you, you like to do? Um, you know, you, yeah. you, guys, I mean, you know, you're the, very the, welcome to come together, but, you know, and make it actually proactive. proactive. Yeah. Yeah. And the flip yeah. side of it is, like, you know, I think my wife understood what I went through because we actually wrote a, a blog post about it. And so, like that night, I wrote down what it was like for me, so she knew. And I know a lot of people who, like from the session we did that day, who've seen this, their other partners didn't know, and then it, it was years since they'd had treatment, and they still didn't know. Mm. And I think I was talking to Johnny, who was in the film about it. He said. At the end of the day, your wife's going and, you know, she's being, like, stabbed through the vagina. You can't then say, that wank was so difficult. <laughs> you, you just can't do it because, like, how can you, how can you do that? 
<laughs> because you've got to be their support, you've got to be their rock, and that's what you're always told, that as the man, that's your job. You've got to be the support for your wife. Can I just ask quickly, there's people here who are going through treatment or have experienced some treatment, would you feel comfortable asking in your consult- with your consultant, can we go in together? Would you, would you feel comfortable raising that question? Anybody in? I, yeah. I think, I mean, I, I'm really going to treatment right now, but we're considering it. The, I think, yes, I mean, but you would ask, I think it's very much something, if the clinical offer to make everything a bit more normal, the yeah. word mm-hmm. masturbation might be used, which we maybe heard in the whole conversation today, maybe two or three times, yeah. but men have to do their thing, yeah. mm-hmm. and not, you have to masturbate, do so. I think that, that makes it easier. I think the same way, like just talk about it in a more normal way, the way, same way we talk much more normal about it, mm-hmm. female items. Yeah. That makes it a bit easier. I'd just like to add a very important point. So I'm Dr. Saab's colleague. And speaking, of, uh, speaking from a medical point of view, I think at where we work at CRJ, it's a very open atmosphere. So um, I think the trend, what started off about five years ago where the male partners were totally ignored, has completely changed. Yeah. So I have a lot of my you know, patients, male partners, saying, you know, Vidya, actually, you know, can we attend a patient's support group, which we have? Which we and that's an important thing I'd like to highlight that's changed in quite a few of the fertility clinics at the moment. And actually what's taken off, it's not the women talking to each other anymore. I've got all my male partners talking to each other and say, Vidya, we went in with a wife, could we do that the same? Absolutely, it's all about patient dedication, and they and they support each other, which is so crucial. So to answer your question, are they comfortable in talking to a consultant? I think in the present atmosphere, it depends, of course, about uh, with the medic mm-hmm. who's looking after you. Mm-hmm. But totally, two hundred percent, they they are free to voice their opinions. We've just got a lady here. We've got a for the patients, um, for the European patients. Uh, they represent Fertility Europe, the um, umbrella organization of patients, um, fertility patients from Europe. Um, we obviously like to think that most patients will find their way to the patient's organization who will give them some support. However, not all the countries have the patient's organization. And some patients don't find their way to the organization. And those will rely mostly on the doctors to tell them what's normal. <laughs> so in that respect, if you just say, of course, you'd like to be together, they will think, OK, that's fine. So it's not just you know, me watching my husband masturbating. Or, you know, just, the, just give that, that's fine. That's your choice. Or if you don't want to be together, it's fine. That's normal as well. But you have a massive role, doctors. Thank you. Yeah, I, I just want to quickly say, you, you said that men are free to ask. Absolutely, and they, they are. do encourage. I'm sure they are, but they won't. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And that, that's not your problem, I realise that. The trend has yeah. changed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of awareness among patients. A- absolutely, but it, it's, it's about the way that men will talk about stuff like that. And, it, and, and, and in that and setting... And it's a communication skill that medics have. Yeah. So there yeah. are medics. So it's not completely... Okay, we've got one last two comments, so let's be quick. This isn't a question, it's just an observation that I particularly was interested in what you were saying about men. I think this is something that in society, and the health system in particular, has to address. Mm-hmm. That women are, from a very early age, monitored. We're invited for cervical smear tests. We get, are invited for breast screening. We, mm-hmm. are t- we are the ones who take responsibility for contraception. Mm-hmm. 
My husband is 60, and it's the first time the NHS has ever contacted him for any sort of screening whatsoever. Mm. You know, and suddenly there's a general health check that's being offered. So it's just an observation. I totally agree with your, you know, men, we've got to put men in, in more in the role of responsibility and more, um, you know, they, they've got to be more present. Yeah, just a quick thing for everyone, a bit of advice if anyone's going through anything at the moment. I'm a counsellor in the clinic. One of the things I say is everyone comes in and everyone's so compliant. Nobody wants to rock the boat, nobody wants to cause it a scene. They all want just, the doctors are the experts, so they just do what they're told. Do that, but challenge, ask, say, can I, should I, is this good? Just keep asking questions. Can I go with my partner? The, the clinic will just take the easy road. Um, you might be welcome to ask questions, but you don't know that, and you just want to make everyone happy. So just be a nuisance. Oh. Thank you. I think it's sort of everything coming together, and I'm just picking up on one of the points um, you, Dr. Oma. Um, mentioned at the very beginning how you felt very fortunate that um, men would um, come to you on their own and that you often sometimes think encourage that. Um, I think, however, there, there could be opportunities where they, you know, you, both options could be offered because that would also open opportunities for dialogue between, you know, when you say, well, the, the, the males have things that they would never say, tell to their partners. But maybe that consultation is the opportunity for for them to start a dialogue and if they wanted to have five minutes alone with you then that could also be part of that dynamic in that consultation and um, it would just nurture that ongoing dialogue that perhaps it would be the beginning then of, of that dialogue between male and, and, and female. And I think that that, that interaction is, is, is important as well. We, we, we don't have any restrictions. We don't say you must attend on your own. Mm. Um, the men make the choices yeah. to come on their own. And if they bring their partners with them, they bring their partners with them. Yeah. Um, but I think what, what we try to do is give, give them that opportunity to actually come on their own if they want to, because they don't usually have that opportunity. So yes, of course, I quite agree with you. There must be communication, and absolutely. Um, but I think sometimes it's helpful for the men to be able to, to voice some things themselves, get it off their chest, and then, then they, they feel more able to go back and have a dialogue with their partners. But yes, and that's also important for the female to hear that. So that could be yes. communicated yeah. there on the day as well. Thank you, everybody. We're going to have to end it there. But... To find out more about Fertility Fest, visit the website, fertilityfest.com. You can find all the social media links and hear all the sessions we recorded and watch the videos we made too. And of course, make sure you don't miss anything about next year's event. If you've enjoyed listening and would like to hear more content about issues affecting your fertility, then I've been making the Fertility Podcast for over four years now. I speak to experts all around the globe as well as people sharing their stories. There's over 100 episodes for you to listen to at thefertilitypodcast.com. Plus, you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spreaker, Spotify, any podcast app you've got on your phone. Uh, All this audio content is available for you in all the main podcast platforms.